This is Pastor Eric. Thanks so much for checking out our Life Church podcast. We pray that it's a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com. Well, we're going to look into the life of a man by the name of Samson. Um, Samson is an interesting individual. He, he was among the, that group of individuals in the Old Testament that were called judges, and they gave leadership to uh, the nation of Israel in between the time of Joshua and his death until the time that Saul, the first king of Israel, was, was established on his throne. So between Joshua's time and King Saul being uh, placed on the throne, there was this, this in-between period where the judges gave leadership to the nation of Israel. And while the judges as a group were, were certainly not perfect by a long shot, still, I believe they were a people who basically had a heart for God, most of them, and they certainly were used of God to accomplish mighty things for the people, doing miracles, mighty deeds. But Samson was, was a different kind of an individual. He, I think Samson, when you look at his life, he is a lesson on how to waste the freedom that God gives to you by compromising yourself with the world. Years ago, I read a short article about Samson that called him a he-man with a she-weakness. Samson's problem wasn't that he couldn't decide who to serve, whether it would be the Lord or himself. He couldn't decide who to serve, the Lord or himself. And sometimes he was fully committed to the Lord, and sometimes he was fully committed to his own lust and his own desires. And that was his problem. And while, if you know the story, God did use him greatly, he still, through compromise, with the world hindered what God could have done and how the ending of his story could have been. You know, and I, I think that same principle is true of nations, not just of individuals. God in his word declares that he has specific purposes for nations of the world. And the same thing is true of national leaders. The Bible says he raises one up, he puts another down. So we understand that God has a purpose behind nations and upon nas uh, for national leaders. But whatever God wants to do through a nation can be hindered if that nation fails to follow the Lord and the principles of the Lord. That was true of Samson, and I believe it is true of America today. If our leadership does not turn us back to the Lord, whatever blessings could have come our way will be forfeited. It's just as simple as that. Um, I don't know if you read the one-year Bible just as an aside here. I, in my reading this morning of the one-year Bible, it takes us into the, in the Old Testament into the, the life of King Josiah of of uh, Judah. And Judah has rebelled against God like Israel had. Judah is a, a tribe that's broken off from away from Israel. And they too have rebelled against God. They're coming under God's judgment. They don't even know the law of God anymore. It's been buried off in the temple. But Josiah had enough common sense to say, let's clean up the temple of God. And when they go in there and they clean it up, they find the, a copy of the law of God and they start reading it and they're there, oh no, exactly what God warned would happen is happening to us as a people. And 
and we have got to do something. So he calls for national repentance. And there was one little phrase in there that caught my attention. As, as Josiah goes into the temple, it says he sat next to the pillar in the seat of authority, and he called on the nation to forsake its idols and, and to return to the Lord God. And I thought to myself, God, will you give us a leader in America who will call on our nation and ask us to return back to the faith of our fathers that established this country? National leaders have a responsibility to these people, to us as, as their people over whom they serve, to give guidance and direction. And when they don't do that, when the people don't follow it, it hinders it, it distorts the blessings that God would bring to us. Going back to Samson, you'll find his, his full story is given to us in, in Judges chapters 13 and 16. And I'm not going to take the time to read all of those chapters of Scripture. But instead, I want to kind of give you this abbreviated version of his story. Samson was set apart unto the Lord by his parents. And they did this because the angel of the Lord appeared to his mother and told her that you are going to have a son, and this son is going to be a deliverer of the people of Israel. And because of this, Samson was to be set apart from his birth unto God as taking a very sacred vow called a Nazarite vow. And you'll find the Nazarite vow in chapter 6 of the book of Numbers where it talks about that. The word Nazarite, comes from a Hebrew word which means to consecrate or to separate. Okay, so it's, it's, what, it's a word you find in the New Testament called sanctification, which means to consecrate or to separate. So it's the same idea that we're sanctified unto God uh, in Christ. Samson, this is before Christ, was set apart for a special calling. He was consecrated unto the Lord for special service. And there were Three requirements that were, that were made of Nazarites. Number one was to abstain from anything made from a grape or any alcoholic beverage whatsoever. And, and so e even a grape in its most benign form as just a grape or a raisin, they weren't to touch it because of what it could become and what it symbolized for the people. And so... God said, you stay away from any alcoholic beverage, you stay away from any grape as a Nazarite. Number two, they were required to not cut their hair, to refrain from cutting their hair, again, as a sign of their commitment to the Lord. And number three, they were to be kept pure in their conduct before God. And the reason for these requirements is that a Nazarite was considered in the scripture holy unto the Lord. And you see that throughout the scriptures, referring to other things, even the temple and the utensils of the temple were called holy unto the Lord. So just as those things were holy and set apart only for God's use, a Nazarite was to be holy and set apart only for God's use. They had a special calling upon their lives. And, and so Samson's calling and his life was to show his dedication that he was holy unto the Lord. So Samson's born of godly parents. He's set apart from his birth for the Lord, and he's called of God to be Israel's deliverer. But in spite of that, 
Samson was a failure. He compromised his life at every turn. He took for granted the blessings and favor and freedom of God that the Lord had given to him. At this particular time in Israel's history, they were under the dominion of the Philistines who worshiped a God by the name of Dagon. And Dagon uh, is an interesting looking God. He had the form of a man except for his head was the head of a fish. The next time somebody tells you that Christians are weird, I want to submit to you that people who worship pagan gods, there's no telling where they'll go with that belief. I would, I, I would say it's a stretch when people make a god out of a body of a man and a head of a fish, when that becomes their god, calling Christians weird is a stretch. Anyway, when Samson became a man, he went to the land of the Philistines where he had no business going, and there he saw a young, beautiful Philistine woman, and he wanted to marry her. Well, mom and dad are opposed to this because of his Nazarite calling. He has no business marrying a girl outside of the faith, but, uh, but he, 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 he was determined that he would have her as his wife. So he's been set apart by God for special service, but here he is flirting with sin. One of the ways that the Spirit of God moved in Samson was to give him exceptional power, physical strength. For example, one time a, a lion came out from a thicket next to the road and attacked him. And the Bible says the Spirit of God came on him and he grabbed that lion and ripped its jaws apart and destroyed the lion that came out to destroy him. You know, I've seen movies of Samson from Hollywood before. Have you seen any movies from, about Samson? In every one of those cases, you got Arnold Schwarzenegger playing Samson, you know, somebody really buff and just powerful and, and everything. But I don't think that's what Samson looked like at all. I think Samson was a skinny little rail of a guy. And nobody could, where does he, how does he do that? I don't think he, like people were saying, well, yeah, he's just really strong. I think they looked at him and said, how in the world could he do what he did? Another time, the Bible tells us he grabbed the jawbone of a dead donkey along the side of the road, and he went after a bunch of Philistine warriors, and he killed a thousand of them by himself with the jawbone of a donkey. And yet again, he's in the Philistine city of Gaza, and the Philistines thought that they could trap him in town, and so they, they closed the, the gates of the city on him, and he gets up at about midnight and he sees the gates of the city closed and he sees the soldiers coming against him. He runs up against the gates of the city, grabs them, rips them and the posts, gates and posts all right out of the ground, puts them on his back and goes up to a high hill and throws them down there. Wow, you talk about incredible power. Well, of course, the Philistines wanted to know the secret to all this power, the strength that he had. And they noticed that he also had designs on another woman, an attraction to a Philistine woman by the name of Delilah. And so they went to Delilah and they paid her to find out the secret of his strength. Well, Samson early on gave her a bunch of false answers as to what the secret of his strength were, was, and, and every time she would cry out, hey, the Philistines are on you, Samson, he would stand up and and he would break whatever bondage they had put or she had put around him. 
And, and so he would never tell her. Finally, her continual nagging got to the point where he told her the truth. He said, if you cut my hair, my strength will leave. And this time he did tell her the truth. Because you see, again, go back to number two there. His uncut hair was a sign of his commitment in the Nazarite vow to the Lord. And so when his hair was cut, even if he didn't cut it himself, when his hair was cut during the night as he's asleep with Delilah, his strength leaves him. And it's at this time that the soldiers come in, they capture him, they take him captive, they gouge his eyes out, they place him in a, in a prison, and there he is grinding wheat, and he's forgotten, grinding grain, pushing a grinding wheel around and around because he's blind, his, his eyes are gone, and he's, he's grinding the grain. But while he's there, forgotten, something happens. His hair starts growing again. But more importantly, his commitment to the Lord God returned and started growing again. One day, the Philistines were, were celebrating their god, Dagon, and they're all gathered in this huge temple that they had built to his honor. And there's thousands and thousands of them there. And they got the idea of bringing Samson out so they could make sport of him. They could make fun of him. And so a young man was sent to retrieve him from prison, and he's brought up because he's blind, he can't see. He asked the young man to just allow him to lean against the main posts of the temple, of the temple of Dagon. And so the young man, thinking nothing of it, does exactly that. And Samson cries out to God, and he says, will you give me the strength to do one more thing for you? And he pushes against those two supporting columns, and down came the entire temple of Dagon. And the Bible says that he killed more in that act in which he died too. He killed more through his death than he did in his entire life. And he brought deliverance to Israel. So that's Samson's story. So what can we learn from Samson about ourselves? I want to suggest three thoughts. The first thing that came to my mind was this, that we tend to glorify results over process. We glorify results over process. And, and that is to say that as a culture of people in America, we have become very results-oriented, sometimes to a fault. We are more concerned with end results than we are with the process used to achieve those results. You follow me? It's the old saying, the end justifies the means. So it doesn't really matter what you do with your life. If, if you achieve what you want, then, then it's okay. It doesn't matter how you get where you want to go. The fact that you get there is all that matters. And so we see it. Throughout our culture, politicians will lie to get a vote. Um, salespeople will, uh, they are encouraged by their bosses to twist truth in order to get us to buy something that we really don't need because the end justifies the means. In American sports, the attitude is whatever it takes as long as there's a win. I remember years ago, uh, being a Denver Broncos fan is, is hard duty. There, 
there are times when it's agonizing to, to love this team. The only thing worse than that would be to be a Dallas Cowboys fan. But um, I digress. I remember one time after a particularly bad shellacking in a playoff game that Denver endured, that the owner of the Broncos uh, appeared on Denver television. We were living in Colorado then, and they, he appeared on television. And he said, "I don't care if I have to, if I have to bail every one of our players out every Sunday morning to get them on the field. I'm going to get a group of guys who are mean enough to get the job done and win." In other words, I don't care about character, I care about results. I don't care that these guys are elevated as sports heroes to the youth of our world and what image they leave. I don't care about that. I only want a winning team. That is what, that's where we're at as a culture. Samson thought his sin was no big deal. As long as he still had power to rip gates off of city walls, it didn't really matter. In fact, Judges 16 is an interesting story telling us about Samson. Now, keep in mind, he's holy unto the Lord. He's a Nazarite. And he's sleeping with a prostitute and then ripping the gates off of the city. And so his thought had to be, God must be okay with everything I'm doing. And we do this too as people, and even as Christians. We compromise our character to achieve a certain goal. The ends justify the means. We think because God is gracious and that judgment hasn't come, that judgment is never going to come. But that's not true. The truth is, as far as God is concerned, if you want long-term blessings upon your life, you must commit yourself fully to the work of God in your life. Character is more important than results. I would rather go to my grave having people say he was a man of integrity before the Lord than saying he was a scoundrel, but boy, he sure was wealthy. I would much rather give up the wealth and have my children honor me than, than have all the wealth the world has to offer and have my kids hate me. Listen, as a pastor, I have, done, I have done funerals where one part of the family has come up to me and said, if you say anything good about our dad, don't you say any, he was terrible. What had happened was that was his BC family before Christ family. Terrible, he was terrible. But he came to Christ, he lost that family, came to Christ, got a new family. This family over here thought he walked on water. They thought he was wonderful. But that family over there hated him. What I'm saying is I would much rather have people say he didn't have much wealth, he didn't have much influence, but man, he was a God-fearing, God God-honoring man in the way he lived his life. Character is more important than results. I've lived long enough to see this nation hurt through charismatic leaders who have no content to their soul. They have no character to their spirit. They got charisma, they can wow you, but they have nothing inside of them. And it has deeply weakened us as a people. 
Results matter. I'm not saying results don't matter. Results do matter. But what matters more is how you get there. And when you compromise who you are to get what you want, it will ruin your life. Amen. Point number two, thought number two. Freedom only comes from building your life on God's principles. You know, when you look at Samson, you see a man who is in bondage. Not just the bondage of a Philistine prison, he was in bondage in his soul. It's interesting that the first recorded words out of his mouth given to us in Judges 14.2 were, I saw a woman. That's the first thing he says. So here's a man with this incredible calling upon his life, incredible giftedness upon him, and yet he's willing to, satis he's willing to sell it all out to satisfy his lust. For him, it's all about what he sees. In fact, if you go down to verse number three, he says to his father, get her for me, for she looks good to me. And so that was his downfall. The apostle John says that the devil works just like that against all of us even today. Same kind of principle. He gives it to us in 1 John 2, 16. He says, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And they're destructive when you build your life on those three things. So you, the, the three traps mentioned here are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the devil uses those things to try to trap God's people into sin. And sometimes through those things, he traps us into habitual sin. We, we just keep reoccurring back to the same old stuff. Samson found out too late in his life that those things do not lead to freedom, but to bondage. So now he's down in the prison, his eyes are gouged out, he's pushing this wheel to grind the grain. Can you imagine what he's thinking? He's, he's the guy who ripped, ripped uh, you know, gates off of walls. He's the guy who, who kills a thousand of the enemy, and here he is down, you know, how the mighty have fallen. Here's something that's very critical for you to understand. And if you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this one thing that I'm going to say today. Bondage happens on the inside of you before it happens on the outside of you. You, you start down the road of bondage long before it starts showing itself. It happens in here. It happens in your heart first. If you flirt with sin, it will corrupt your spirit and lead to bondage. It'll lead you to do what you never thought you would ever do. And the truth is, we cannot flirt with sin over and over again and then expect God's spirit and God's favor to rest upon our lives. It's interesting to me that after Samson's hair was cut, and the enemy soldiers come in and they, they grab a hold of him, that Judges 16.20 says, he thought, I will do as before and shake myself free. Look, I underlined the last part of that. That is so powerful. He didn't realize the Lord had left him. And I want to tell you, there are thousands and thousands of people who claim Christ, but they don't realize that the Lord has left them. Paul says in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom 
that Christ has set us free. So stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened or entangled again by a yoke of slavery. He's not talking about literal slavery here. He's talking about the slavery of the soul. And, and, and so freedom, when you are set free in Christ and you feel the freedom from religion and you feel the freedom from uh, religious codes and do's and don'ts and everything, you can begin to think or you maybe get the impression that that means you can do whatever you want with absolutely no consequences. But Paul says here that if you don't learn to use your freedom rightly and build your, your life rightly on godly sound principles, you'll end up worse than you were before. In fact, Jesus said that very thing when, when he healed a man and he saw him later. John 5.14 says, he says to this man, now you are well, now you're healed. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. In other words, when we, when we take for granted the freedom that we have and allow it to become a source of slavery to us again by involving ourselves back in the old stuff, wherever we were before our salvation, we're going to go lower. Something worse will help happen. It, it drags you down. So freedom requires, new freedom requires new responsibility if you want to keep the new freedom you've received. Amen? Amen? All right. The last thing I want to share with you out of insight I got out of his life is that freedom isn't free. And we all know that. Uh, my mom and dad and <clears throat> Carrie's mom and dad were part of what's called in America the greatest generation. You say, well, why were they called the greatest generation if you never heard that? It's because they survived two unbelievable ca uh, catastrophes uh, in their lifetime. First of all, was the Great Depression in the 1930s. And you know, we talk about being upset today that we have eight or nine or 10% unemployment. They had 33, 34% unemployment in America back then. It was, we, we don't have time to get into that, it's just the way it was. And the devastation that brought to our nation economically. The second catastrophe they had to endure was right after at the end of the, of the Great Depression came the Second World War. And that was fought on two fronts, one in Europe and one in Asia against the Japanese. And so we had this economic depression and so we called it the Great Recession here a few years ago. One of the things I found interesting was how full the restaurants still were and and the sporting events, the parking lots, they were all pretty full. Um, in the Great Depression, it was poverty, folks. And out of that poverty then came this incredible sacrifice of taking on Germany and Japan in a worldwide conflict. Now, both Carrie's dad and my dad were wounded in World War II, both of them in Europe. Carrie's dad was more severely wounded than my father her father lost his right leg in the war. I remember as a, as a young man, probably preteen, I remember watching a war movie one time with my dad on television, and I just asked my dad off the cuff, Dad, did you think that you would live through World War II? And he said, absolutely not. And I remember the emotion that brought to me as, as a little boy 
thinking about the fact that my dad maybe would not have made it, thinking about the courage that it took for, for that, that generation of men and women to, to march off into their various responsibilities of war. It, it amazed me. Of all of our wars in our 240 years as a nation, about 1.2 million men and women have died in our wars. That's a ratio of about one out of 50. Soldiers and staff personnel have died. In World War II, four, over 403,000 of our soldiers did not come home. The truth is, we are free today to love or to hate America because of what they did. The, the truth is, we are free to speak our minds and, and to share our feelings, whether social media or verbally, because of what those people did. The truth is that we are free to worship here today because of what those people did. Our freedom wasn't free. It never has been free. It's been paid for in blood. It is estimated that every year in the world, 64,500,000 people give their lives to Jesus Christ and experience freedom for the first time. Isn't that amazing? 64,500,000 people every year are coming into the family of God. They experience true freedom for the first time in their lives, but that freedom didn't come cheap. That only happens because one man was willing to lay his life down. Jesus said in John 10, 18, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. You say, Pastor Jim, do you think that Jesus knew how tortured he would be? I, I absolutely think he knew. He, that's why he cried out and sweat drops of blood beforehand. And he said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup of suffering pass. He never committed a crime, and yet he died a, a criminal's death anyway on a cross. But it was all part of God's plan because there the price was paid for our freedom. Why did Jesus have to die such a brutal death? I believe it's because our sin was so brutal. And it had to match the intensity of our sin. On this 4th of July weekend, I think Samson teaches us three things that are really important for us to remember. That number one, results are not the most important thing out of your life, it's how you live your life. It's the character of your life. That if you want your life to have long-term blessings, you must build your life on the foundation of godly principles and realize, thirdly, that what you've been given came at great cost, both politically, socially, and most of all, spiritually. And we owe God big time. Let's let him be the author of our lives. Let's let him be the owner of our lives. This is Pastor Eric. Thanks so much for checking out our Life Church podcast. We pray that it's a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com.